At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Last year, we launched our course, The Data-Driven Classroom, and had hundreds of educators and clinicians take this course with consistently amazing feedback. I heard from so many teachers how this course really changed the way they approached data, how they were able to set up simple data systems, train their paras, and be collecting data to make data-based decisions within days of finishing the course. That feedback made me so happy. Now that course has been closed and unavailable since last year, but guess what? We are reopening the course, the data-based classroom, and I want you to be one of the first ones in. If data is something you have been struggling with for years, let's work on this together. Let me give you all of the tools to make this something that can consistently happen in your classroom. And guess what? Since you are a podcast listener, and I absolutely love my podcast listeners, I have an awesome code for you. When you use the code DATA100, you're going to get $100 off of the course bundle. Now, this code is only going to be usable until March 20th. So you only have one week to use this code, but Data 100 will get you $100 off of that course bundle. So that means for less than $200, you are getting the amazing data toolkit with literally hundreds of data sheets, all editable. And don't worry, I teach you how to edit it. And that entire data-driven course that touches on academic data, behavior data, staff training, and so much more. There's a link in the show notes with all of the information. Let's make this year the year that data really works. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. Today, we are talking early language development. I have Gina Russell today on the blog, and I met Gina years ago, maybe like eight or nine years ago when I first started my blog. She and I really clicked. She's been blogging on the Autism Helper team for like six years. She's a former preschool teacher, ran an amazing classroom. Now she works exclusively in early intervention. Her new company, Tiny Sparks, does virtual coaching and consultation for teachers and parents. She's going to tell us all about that. She's going to be sharing five ways to foster early language development. These are all actionable strategies that you can bring to your classroom, to your house right away. And even though this is really focused on early language development for our youngest learners, you could use these strategies really at any age or skill level. I'm so excited for you to hear from Gina. She has such a passion for this topic and shares so many great ways that these strategies look like in a classroom or in a home. I love her examples. So let's go hear from Gina Russell. Hi, Gina. Thank you for joining me on the podcast for the second time, although I think your first episode was maybe episode four or five. (laughs) It was a while ago. 
I, I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast. I first met Gina maybe eight years ago, Gina, was that right? Mm-hmm. I don't, I think it's I was pregnant, long with, pregnant with my yes. oldest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you were pregnant. Yes. With your oldest for sure. Yeah. So I met Gina, you know, eight years ago, worked with her school district and Gina and I just really clicked to have a lot of the same philosophies and perspectives on education and behavior and language. And so Gina's been on our blogging team really since then, I think. And and being yeah. on Instagram, you guys probably recognize her name from Insta Story Takeovers. And so I'm so excited to have her on the podcast to talk about early language development. I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. It's something that I'm super passionate about. And I think you're, you're going to hear that as I talk about um, my strategies today. So, you know, I love, I love a checklist. So Gina came with a a list of five things and I was like, great, perfect. Let's do it. So Gina was sharing with me, you know, how she works a lot with parents in early intervention with young students that oftentimes parents will come to her with this kind of similar like pain point that like, you know, my student, my child isn't that interested in playing. They don't notice if I'm in the room, they don't seem to want to play with me. What should I do? And I've definitely heard parents say that. So I love that kind of that's what we're going to start with because I'm sure other parents can connect with that. Absolutely. I find, you know, I work with infants and toddlers, so birth to three that, you know, there's exactly just what you said, you know, and my, my kiddo's not talking yet. They don't have a lot of words, but it's so hard to grab their attention. It's not just about eye contact. It's that increasing that awareness, interest, and curiosity. And it just keeps looping back around with so many of the kids and families that I work with. So I figured it was a really great point to me, like use strategies for today on this podcast. Well, it's kind of interesting to think about the relationship between language and play, especially for our youngest children, that those are, you know, intertwined inexplicably. Absolutely. And, you know, you're, you know, as a teacher, you're building rapport with your students. And what we think of as interesting for play may not be what our kids find interesting. And same thing with parents. You know, you go into it thinking, oh, my gosh, they're going to love baby dolls and the pretend kitchen and putting blocks in a truck. And then, you know, your kiddo may find some type of sensory regulation more interesting for play, such as pacing back and forth, carrying markers, or maybe it's not playing with baby dolls, or maybe it's rolling cars back and forth. So all play is okay. It's just tapping into that type of play and creating interest and awareness around it so that we can also connect that communication. Because again, you hear parents and, you know, teachers saying it feels like they, you know, my child doesn't even know I'm in the room or they're not interested in connecting with me. And that's just not the case, but we can definitely use their interests in order to um, foster that early language and learning development for sure. Yeah. That's a great point on like what our expectations are as parents or as teachers versus what, you know, is the reality for that child. So that kind of gets to your first um, strategy, which is really matching, extending and describing that child's play routine. So can you talk, you talked a little bit about that, but that's a great point on play isn't one thing. And and how else can parents do that or teachers do that to extend and match what the child is doing? Absolutely. I find, you know, when I go, I'm in infants and toddlers, I'm constantly going into different homes monthly. So maybe as a teacher, you might have a new student maybe once or twice a year and you kind of get used to your kiddos. Um, But in other types of, you know, private therapies and other types of environments, Um, we're walking into, you know, a new relationship with a kiddo and we're not sure what they're interested in. And it's, it could be hard sometimes to go into their type of play in order, 
you know, to see that language and make that connection, especially right in the beginning. And especially, I'm sure, as you know, with the really little ones where their attention spans probably just a few seconds anyway. Um, and so my first strategy is that I call it the matching, extending and describing. So for, for example, um, say the matching aspect. So say that your student or your child, they, like, they love to lay on the floor rolling the cars back and forth. Maybe in your mind, you had them going through like a town with their car or like putting in a car wash and, you know, parking in a garage, but it's not something that they're interested in. So matching their play means that you're literally going to mirror what they're doing and you, you're not going to take their car away from them or touch the car or force them to like, you know, do any type of play. You're just going to simply mirror and match what they're doing. So you're going to take your own car and you're going to mimic what they're doing. And maybe you'll add in a little bit of wait time Um, and you're going to roll it back and forth with them as they're rolling theirs back and forth. And you don't even have to say anything at that time. Or maybe if they're making some vocalizations or they're saying car or they're saying beep beep, or they're just making a sound, you can imitate that away. So you're literally just matching and mirroring their play. Um, same thing, even if your kiddo is not engaging with like an actual, you know, what we consider a toy. So maybe they're pacing back and forth in the room or in the classroom with, holding markers or sticks, then you do the same thing for a little bit of a period of time and put in a little wait time. And before you know it, you'll probably notice that they're going to stop and look at you and notice that you're mirroring their behavior. And that is 100% acceptable type of appropriate play between, you know, an adult or a parent or provider and a child. I love those examples, seeing what that looks like, you know, that it's okay to just watch and just mod, you know, do the same thing they're doing without talking. That's, that's a great way to visualize that. Exactly. And, you know, sometimes I feel like maybe as parents and providers, we're not, our behavior is not as reinforced when it's not something we think it should be. So, you know, we're, we, we think we should be crawling around on the floor, acting silly like a dog or, and they, they're, you know, the kiddo is not seem to be playing any intention to us at all. And so that doesn't reinforce our behavior either. It makes us not want to play that anymore. Um, you know, playing with sticks, moving back and forth, that may not be as a reinforcing type of play for an adult, but that's really important part to step into their type of play and accept all forms. Um, and the next one is called extending. And so again, with like the car and the stick example, say they enjoy rolling the cars, you can add a small ramp to your car. So, or maybe you're going to pull out a, a block. Um, I go into homes all the time. I have no idea what type of toys or objects they have, and I just can on the fly, you know, grab anything and make it into something. So maybe I take my car and I'm rolling it down. And even if it feels like, you know, the child is not paying attention to me, or they're not really interested in to me, it just takes a little bit of time. And you might see them and I'll model some language like down ramp or up. Um, And then again, you know, if a kiddo is carrying sticks back and forth, I'm going to grab some sticks and I'm going to do the same thing. And then maybe my extension for that activity is going to be beating on the back of a Tupperware like a drum. Um, And even if the kiddo does not mirror that, that's okay. You're showing interest in what they have and they will start paying attention to you. And again, it's with your own items. Like you're not being intrusive. You're not taking their items because sometimes I think we get like too involved. Right, exactly. And, you know, you you want that control over like, oh, this is the way it should be going. And I I need Mm -hmm. to get in my lesson or I need to get in the core words that I need to say. And it's just, it's not the case. You want to build that rapport with that student knowing that, you know, you're interested in what they have. Um, 
And my last one for this part was describing. So I like to say, like, think of yourself as a mini newscaster. Now, I'm not a sports person, but from what little I've seen of sports and they, <laughs> the newscaster has the play by play of like what's happening. So while you're going to use shorter language, you want to describe what they're doing. Um, again, you don't have to be intrusive and, and, you know, use the materials that they're using, but you might say, oh, blocks go up, up, up. And you're just doing very described, like short bursts of language. Um, the sticks go bang, bang, bang. And you're just literally giving a little play by play what they're doing. And maybe they are, you know, dumping blocks in a truck. Oh, dump truck goes, you know, dump, dump, dump and repeat that short language. And I think you'll be really, really excited to see what you get out of that. I love the description of the play-by-play. That's like exactly what it is. Just like an easy play-by-play, not like asking questions, not giving demands, just play-by-play. Exactly. All right. So what's strategy number two? So my next favorite one, they're all my favorite. This is spoiler (laughs) alert. Um, (laughs) It's called the face-to-face and close enough to touch strategy. I didn't come up with that exact line by myself. I found this um, online through a workshop that I had done and I've kind of just, you know, mirrored it and made it my own. So it's basically the strategy is that, and this is going to pair well with my third one, is that um, we are going to place ourselves in front of the kiddo during play, you know, you know, as much as you can, instead of, you know, maybe being in the back or, you know, if the kiddo's sitting on the lap of the adult reading a book, we're going to try and place ourselves in front of them, close enough to touch, not on top of them and not too far away, but so we can be within their proximity. And there's a great visual and I can um, send it to you for your uh, listeners as well that I found that goes along with this. It's a little boy sitting on the living room carpet and his mom um, is, you know, a little bit in front of him. She's face to face and his eyes are projecting out a light, like a flashlight. And it's just such a great visual to keep in mind when you're working um, with students that you want to be in front of them so that they can look for you, right? Like it, we, we want them not just for like an eye contact or joint attention, but we want children to learn to look for a communication partner. Um, and that's really important. And there's a couple different ways that we can do that as well. Okay. So does that bring us to number three or is there more on this one? Cause I know these two go hand in hand. So one little example, just with that, um, you may be thinking like, Oh, my kiddo likes to move around. Um, but one thing I like to do, um, when I go into homes is I might, um, you know, some kids don't always really love to like look through books for long periods of time and that's totally fine. But I will like sit on the floor. I'll have, you know, the parents sit on the floor and we'll outstretch our legs And we'll lay the child on their backs on top of our legs. So at least we're looking, you know, kind of over them, peering over the book, reading a book. Maybe we have a puppet. Maybe I'm blowing bubbles. And so we're still face to face, but just in a different proximity. So kind of just thinking outside the box, you know, when you're reading a story, um, you know, you're reading over them so that you can peek at their face and they can look up at you and have um, that attention. So that's kind of like one of my favorite things to do in homes. Oh, I love the example. I know. It's, it's so much fun. I just like, you know, you really have to, these little ones, I'm telling you, they make you work for everything. They're, you've got to entertain <laughs> them. <laughs> um, so my third strategy, um, I just call it simply the Dr. Mar- Mary Barbera uh, three times method. She came up with this method um, and I took one of her workshops a really long time ago and I loved it and it just made it was so simple and it made so much uh, sense. So I just kind of, you know, again, made it my own, you know, 
applied it to what I was doing within homes and with kiddos. Um, so Dr. Mar- Mary Barbera, what she does is she calls it three times strategy and she'll take a toy or an object or maybe a photo of mom and one at a time, she'll just kind of, you know, make sure she has the kiddo's attention, maybe, you know, kind of wave it in front of them. And as soon as they see it, she'll bring it up to her face and she, um, you know, the child might look and reach for it and she'll label it three times. You know, maybe it's a cookie, 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 cookie. And then she hands the child the picture of the cookie, or maybe it is a cookie. Um, and what I love about this is the few seconds that you might get from the kiddo just glancing up at you and seeing your lips move and clearly labeling an object is huge, especially with our little guys that are just, you know, constantly moving and you feel like they're not even, they don't even know that you're in there. Um, and so for me, for my really, really little ones, we're not necessarily doing like table time, but during play, if they're using crayons or, they're just playing with a bunch of cars. I might take a car and just kind of like, you know, put it in their line of view and then bring it up to my face and I'll say car and I'll just hand it to them. And it's just incredible to see kids start to learn to look, you know, to look up to an adult, to increase that awareness that, Hey, someone's talking to me and that thing in their hand is called a car. I love that just little distinction of like moving it towards your face. And it does make so much sense. And it's again, creating that communication partner, not just randomly labeling things. Exactly. And it kind of takes away, I feel like the demand, you know, we don't want to sit there and just be like, say car, say cookie. Yeah. And you know, that that's, it gets exhausting. It's not, you know, interesting um, to the kiddo. There are some kids that may enjoy like flashcard type things. Um, but a lot of times I, you know, as parents too, you know, you're really super busy and you're, you're kind of just like putting out the the food on the plate and you're, you're rushing around because you have 5 million things to do at one time. But if, if we can just do it a couple times a day, at least you kind of get into this natural routine. Um, and then before you know it, you know, you don't have to wave every single thing, you know, in their face all day long, but that direct time where you can just kind of commit to that. I mean, I have, I can't tell you the amount of progress I've seen in kids and all of a sudden they might say a word that they've never said before because now they've increased that attention, you know, and, curiosity with their, you know, mom or dad, or maybe their teacher. But again, without that, like persistent demand, and I get the urge to want to be like, yes, say cookie, say cookie, say cookie. But it's creating sometimes an aversive experience for for not only the kid, but also like the caregiver too. Eventually that's like not going to be fun to just do that all the time. Right. And that natural, you know, we want to be natural during our play and mealtime and not, you know, feel like robotic or anything like that. Um, And it creates that trust, you know, it's, you know, I'm going to say this and I'm going to give it to you. And then, you know, as the parent, you don't feel like you're constantly just like tapping on their shoulder, trying to get their, you know, their input, they're going to start naturally looking towards you. You know, I need something. Where is mom? Where's dad? Where's grandma? Yeah. Love that. All right. Strategy number four. This one has been really big for me too. I told you I was going to say this over and over that, you know, (laughs) these are all important, but they really, they all do kind of sync up together. So it's a sensory regulation mindset. And I say that because when children are regulated, they're going to be in their optimal zone for like, you know, learning and language. If you think about it, when a kiddo is upset or crying or they need to move like they have checked out in every other area right like they're not they're not paying attention to you in that moment because they need to move or they are just really upset and they're not going to learn the language or they're not going to be open to learning at that point you know it's kind of like take your child to the grocery store and they have this like 
huge tantrum on the floor and you're trying to reason with them. And it's just like, (laughs) there's no reasoning at that point because they're dysregulated. Um, so having that one, it's, it's been really big, especially for these little ones Their attention spans. Again, they're really short. They want to move. Um, you know, they get upset really easily because they're little and maybe they don't have the language yet. Um, so we're not trying to force kids to sit still. So maybe if they're pacing back and forth, I'm moving with them. I might, you know, we might jump around. Um, of course this goes really deep into like, you know, what type of sensory input they're craving, but overall, you know, not being like, sit down and come sit over here with me. You know, if a child needs to move, we're moving with them. Um, or we take our therapy and our learning into a movement type of motor game. I like this whole like theme throughout all of these strategies of really just following their lead and that there's no like quote unquote wrong. Like if you want to do that, cool. If you don't have a big attention span yet, cool. And just really following their skills and their interests. Absolutely. And I get it. You know, I was a classroom teacher for, you know, over 10 years. And I understand, like, for me, I always felt like I had to have a product come out of a lesson or I like I wasn't doing my job. Like we have to complete this activity or I didn't do my job or play should look like this, or I didn't teach them how to play in centers. And that's just honestly not the case. It doesn't mean that you have, you know, boundaries for safety and expectations for all children. It's just a matter of like truly meeting them where they're at. And that child led can be really uncomfortable because sometimes when I go into a home and I I feel like I, I can't grab the attention. I'm trying everything I can to like, oh, would this be fun? And it's not, you know, and they're just, mm-hmm. they're not having it that day. Or maybe, you know, the sticks are just way more exciting than the puppets that I brought or the bubbles that I take out, which by the way, bubbles pretty much work every time. But <laughs> no, <laughs> just keeping that, taking that pressure off of yourself that you have to like perform and have this huge outcome every single time. It's just not, you know, that's not reasonable. And I like the idea of this strategy is really like a mindset that we need to have sensory needs met first before we can get to learning. And, and that's going to be by following their lead. And if they're, if they're jumping up and down, if they're chill on a, on a beanbag chair, that's what they need to be in a position to learn. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about it, like when you're stuck in a meeting and you just feel like you're crawling out of your skin. You're like, if I cannot get up right now and move around this room, like I'm going to scream, you know, and I can't, I can't even listen to what the person's saying because I don't care at this point because I'm so, I need to move or maybe it's, you know, I don't need to move and I want to sit or I need to do something. So just really kind of broadening your senses about like what's happening with the kiddo. Um, you know, it's not a non-compliance thing or something like that. Um, you know, what do they need in order to facilitate that language and learning piece? And, you know, Jesse Ginsburg, who I was trained by, and I love, she has like a seesaw and you think about when it's balanced, that's when, you know, if we can get kids to be as balanced as possible, that's when the most learning and, you know, that language piece is going to happen. And then when it's tipped and it's, they're dysregulated, we're not, we're not going to get as much language and learning. So just trying to keep that seesaw balanced um, was always a great visual in my head that I learned from her. That's a great analogy. And you're really thinking if our goal, and as I'm sure most parents, caregivers, teachers are, is language development and communication. We have to have these foundations first. Absolutely. And I've, I've seen like the most improvement, you know, with this motor component of, you know, 
instead of just, you know, sitting at a table, like doing a flashcard. And of course that's, you know, very appropriate for maybe like an older age or something like that too, as well. But when you add in a motor component, such as moving or making marks on a paper with a crayon, as you're saying, a sound approximation, it's pretty incredible how much more engagement you'll get in that point. So definitely, definitely try out that motor component. I feel like this is, I mean, still great strategy to bring with older kids too, because sometimes we're just forcing it with, Mm -hmm. you know, older students and, and even students without a diagnosis that just are, are a kid that needs more movement and can't sit and listen to a lecture or sit while they work and, and being more open-minded on what that can look like. And proactive. And, you know, again, going back to classroom, I can, I can just, I know like, you know, teachers were like, oh, but we have to get this done and we have to keep moving and I can't always take breaks and stuff like that. Or I can't do it for that one kiddo, but it's more of just, you know, maybe like a whole class approach, you know, we all do it, you know, and maybe Johnny over here does a little bit more than um, Susan over here and it's a little bit smaller, but that's okay. Um, Because I've definitely been there where you just feel like you've got a million things to cram in in a day. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right. So our last strategy So my last one, you'll probably be like, well, of course, Um, pairing visuals and objects with play. And that may seem like, okay, yeah, I get that. Why wouldn't I think of that? But I've also, again, seen a huge improvement um, in language acquisition when I do this. Um, You know, if I'm just going to sing wheels on the bus to a little one, he or she may be interested in it. But when I have wheels on the bus visuals to go along with my song, game changer, I just, and it gets parents involved too. Um, you know, they, they understand like what else they can do besides just singing the song or maybe you're singing the song and the kid just walks away and you just, you're like, I feel so silly right now. Like, <laughs> you know, and they're like over there eating their cookie. Like it just seems like they could care less about like what you're singing but you, you know, add in, I printed off some wheels on the bus visuals for a kiddo and we pulled them out of like a folder, a file folder. And I mean, that moment compared to when I just sang the song was so completely different, you know, because then it was kind of like the anticipation. And then there you are again, bringing an object up to your face and that wait time. And that kiddo is kind of now anticipating well, what else is in your folder. Mm. Um, and just seeing, you know, them now approaching me to, to pull out the next one, you know, now we're singing the horn on the bus and I'm beeping the horn on the visual. Um, that's huge. And then also I love to do like a song choice board. So I know the child, again, we're going back to child preferences. They love wheels on the bus and baby shark. I have both of those visual logos on a board. And instead of just picking one, I might say like, what song baby shark or wheels on the bus. They may not even glance at it. They may swap my visual away. They may not touch it or they might. It's okay. I'll choose it. And I'll say, Hmm, I think I want to hear wheels on the bus. Um, and then I'll start singing it. Maybe they'll, you know, start no, no, or whining or crying or, you know, covering their ears. Oh, you don't want wheels on the bus. You want a baby shark. Um, and then that could fail too. And they may not want to hear me sing at all, which is completely appropriate. But having <laughs> that visual um, is huge. Or maybe we're doing bubbles and I have a pop it phrase and a stomp it you know, foot visual. And every time I blow the bubbles, I touch, you know, stomp it. And I stomp on the visual and I stomp the bubbles. I just can't explain the amount of connection that that makes for that kiddo. I mean, I haven't had a kiddo yet. And I've been doing this for a really long time that hasn't responded in some way to 
at least one of these five strategies for sure. Oh my God. I mean, that's a big vote of confidence right there. Yes. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm telling you the little ones, they make you work even harder. So if, <laughs> if, you, can, if you can get an 18 month old to be engaged in what you're doing, you, you're doing pretty well. <laughs> I like the idea, the point you made about visuals also being helpful for the parent or caregiver too, because I feel like it makes the activity a little more concrete and feels maybe a little bit more like a full-fledged activity, like how you're talking yes. earlier, like we need a product, we need this. So we're all kind of in that mindset of like what it quote unquote should look like. And I think sometimes adding visuals gets us to that point in our way, but also in a way that the kids enjoy too, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's like a open and close to an activity and it, yeah. it can feel silly to, you know, roll around on the floor as an adult or sing a silly song. And especially when it feels like they're not really into what you're doing. You're just kind of like <laughs> singing and everyone's like, okay. Um, but when you have that visual to guide you, it's kind of like, you know, you've, oh, we've got another one to sing and, and we keep going and it reinforces. It's just, it's pretty incredible what, you know, a little bit of a visual. Um, maybe they're in a swing and, you know, they love to, sw- they love to sing and you're holding those visuals while they're in a swing. Um, so you're getting that sensory regulation piece along with the visuals. Um, the other day I have a little one who is very, very tough to grab her attention. And we were doing, um, the wheels on the bus again, and I had Play-Doh and I was, um, I rolled it up and down her arm as I was singing it. And just by doing that, she paid attention to me. If I had just (laughs) sang the song, she could have cared less. I was in the room, but man, that Play-Doh on her hands and up her arms, um, she suddenly was looking at me and smiling. And it was just, it was just incredible. Oh, I love that. Well, that like is, brings us really nicely to the next topic to discuss, because that's a tiny spark right there. So I would love to hear about, um, a little bit more about your company, Tiny Sparks and what you do and, and kind of what brought you to starting Tiny Sparks. I, I couldn't be more proud of Tiny Sparks. First of all, I, I named it Tiny Sparks because just just like you said, um, I I just know for certainty that in every kid that we work with, there is always like it feels like there's this one pivotal moment that spark, and you know everyone gets excited or the parents like, oh my god, they finally said you know ball or whatever it was, or maybe you know they did something in class, and it's just it feels so huge in that moment, but it's really like this accumulation of a, of a million of like these, these sparks that we've like put in our work, our time, our, you know, our play with our kids. It feels like a moment, but it's really like this accumulation. And then tiny is obviously, I always say I work with tiny humans because I do. So these tiny sparks, tiny humans. Um, but overall it's this, um, I created this private virtual coaching and consultation service. I did it because I had a lot of families, um, you know, from across the country, you know, thanks to social media, I hear so many families are saying, I'm on a wait list. I need more help. I need more help. I need more help. I need it now. Um, or maybe, you know, maybe your area just doesn't have as much or, you know, you're, I offer it virtually so that I can, you know, really help people across the country with this coaching piece. Um, so it's, and I also help the professionals as well. So it's a professional and, you know, a parent type of service. Um, and I specialize in ages 18 months to five years of age. So, you know, that's my, that's my sweet spot, my sweet age that I love, um, to work with. Awesome. So what does virtual coaching look like with you? 
So I I feel like a lot of people are a little bit maybe like timid after the whole, you know, COVID and teletherapy and just, you know, Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting and, you know, nobody wants to be in front of a screen. And I I totally respect that. Um, But I do offer the virtual coaching. It's an educational model. So it's not like a direct therapy appointment or anything like that. Um, But we will create goals based on, you know, the priorities for your kiddo or maybe your client. Um, And we'll do these coaching sessions remotely, obviously. And I like them because, you know, as a busy parent, you know, you might already be enrolled in multiple different therapies for your kiddos. And I don't want it to feel like one more thing. I want it to be something that empowers parents to feel like, hey, I can do this. I'm just tweaking maybe something I'm already doing in my daily routine. It's not one more thing I have to do. It's not one more therapy I have to go to. Um, and so I love this approach cause I can, you know, we can kind of eliminate that travel time. It's very, very flexible. Um, you know, obviously life happens. Um, but I like the coaching because it really supports their development and we're going to consistently work together. That way we can make sure those skills happen. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to link tiny sparks in the show notes. Anything else you want to share about it? Um, well, I offer, um, I do have a one-time, uh, consultation for a parent and a professional. If you're like, I just don't really know where to go from here. And, um, you know, we can have, um, a consultation period. I usually do 45 minutes. If you just want to hop on zoom and we want to go over some things, you'll send me some things prior, you know, some information about your kiddo, what you're looking for. And I can come up with different support strategies for you to take home like that very day. Um, and then from there, if you're like, I want more then I have learning and language packages. And I do that because I also make customized materials. So again, like we're talking about, you know, a lot of the song stuff and these strategies, I can make those visuals, I can make those materials and actually we, I send them to the parent and then we use them together, um, and troubleshoot. I know. Cause and I so- could like think of parents like that are like, oh, those sound visuals or the song visuals sound so cool, but how do I make that? So that's an awesome service to provide. Exactly. And, you know, then there's the laminator and Velcro and you know how I feel about those. I love them. You know, I with my laminator and Velcro. So it's just, it really takes the guesswork out of what you need for your child because you can go online and Google and research and website and surf the web and spend hours and hours trying to figure it out. But it's kind of like that gym membership, right? Like I can do a bunch of you know, kind of random workout videos. And I might, I might see some difference, but if I follow a program, I'm probably going to see, you know, I'm going to commit more and I'm going to see even more progress. That's kind of why I've packaged it like that because I want, you know, parents to feel empowered and, and see progress. Okay, great. Well, Gina, thank you so much for sharing five ways to foster early language development. I know these were focused on early intervention, early childhood, but I really think these strategies could be brought in some way to so many different grade levels and age levels. So thank you so much for joining me for the second time on the podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. I've had a great time being here again. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening.
Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum, Everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.